All right, well, if you find your Bibles, if you would turn to Acts chapter 17 and listen as I read our passage, verses 1 through 9, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Not everyone is a joiner. That is to say, not all of you are naturally inclined to join a club, an organization, even a church. Let's just say that membership is low on the priority list of many. There was a business called Bymart in my hometown. It was right next to the grocery store. It was, I don't know, a little bit like a tiny Walmart back in the 80s. And uh, to get into Bymart, you had to purchase a pass. I believe it was about $2, I think, for an entire year. You would get a little green card, and when you went in the front door, you showed them the card, and they would buzz you in, literally buzzing you in and opening this little wooden door so that you could go buy things. And even as a kid, it didn't make sense to me that I was paying them money to let them let, them let me buy things in their store. I'm not naturally a joiner. Some of us just haven't, and I don't even want to talk about Costco, some of us have, you know, an, an independent streak in us. We don't want to wear what other people are wearing. We don't, we don't want to sign up where other people are signing up. Uh, we don't want to join just because everyone else is, is joining. But sometimes you don't have a choice. All right, sometimes circumstances arise that force upon you the necessity of making a decision, of getting involved. Uh, there are moments that you cannot remain neutral. So yesterday we celebrated July 4th, 1776. Colonists had to decide. You were either on the side of the Redcoats or the Revolutionaries. There was no Switzerland in Virginia, no in-between. And that's what I want you to see in our passage today, like a, a revolution. The gospel is, by its very nature, divisive 
I know, I know the gospel unites. We pray about that. We sing about that. But there are times when you need to recognize the divisiveness of the gospel. It divides. Now, we are not, as individual Christians, to be divisive. But again, there's no doubt that the gospel divides. It forces you to pick sides. In fact, Jesus said it would be this way. Luke 12, 53, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, that verse doesn't get quoted a lot, especially not at Thanksgiving. When the gospel comes to you, it forces you to choose sides. And when you choose Christ, well, the battle just begins. Now, the book of Acts, where we are, is from the first century. A historian by the name of Luke recorded the rise and the spread of the good news of Christianity. That good news is what we call the gospel. And this gospel is more amazing and more powerful and more life-transforming than any other message you'll ever hear. And the book of Acts really begs the question, whose side are you on? I mean, I know there's a lot of there's a lot going on today. I mean, these are difficult times. Right? The, the Bible begs the question, whose side are you on? And it's not asking a, a nationalistic question. It's not asking a political question. It is asking a fundamentally spiritual question. Whose side are you on? Our passage, Acts 17, 1 through 9, uh, from these few verses, I want to share three truths about the gospel. Three truths about the gospel. I will share that truth, and then I will seek to apply each truth to our lives today. Number one, the gospel is the point of the Old Testament. The gospel is the point of the Old Testament. Look again at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women." Well, the events of this passage take place in Thessalonica, a city in Greece, southwest of Philippi, that city that we've been studying for these past uh, few weeks or months, depending on how you want to look at it. Paul clearly didn't stop in Amphipolis or Apollonia, uh, probably because these cities didn't have a large Jewish population. Instead, he landed in Thessalonica, a Roman city with a synagogue. And it was Paul's custom, verse 2, when he came to a new city to first go to the synagogue. And this is interesting because, well, many of you will know that, that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And as you read Acts carefully, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize many signature moments where it's made clear that the, the focus of Paul's ministry was to be the, the non-Jews. In fact, it's part of Paul's conversion story is the Lord telling uh, telling Paul that he is going to be an, a messenger of the gospel to, to the nations. And as Paul is preaching throughout his first missionary journey, he's constantly coming into conflict with Jewish people. And it's affirmed in Paul's ministry that, in fact, he's going to take the gospel to the nations. But here we are once again. 
And Paul is in Thessalonica. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. Well, I would say that there's no conflict here. If Paul wanted all of Thessalonica, a Gentile city, a a non-Jewish city, if he wanted that city to be reached for Christ, well, it made sense to go to those citizens of Thessalonica who knew their Old Testament because if the gospel caught fire with them, right, these members of the town of the city of Thessalonica, well then, he could start a movement that would affect the entire city. And so Paul goes to the synagogue, and it's there that he begins to teach. And for three consecutive Saturdays, he taught. I don't know how long the messages were. Uh, I presume that it was longer than an hour. Uh, I don't know for sure, but let's say he spoke for a couple of hours. Three consecutive Sabbaths, three consecutive Saturdays. Could have been anywhere from a six-hour seminar on how to find Christ in the Old Testament. Maybe he spoke longer. In any event, that's what he did. Look at verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, Luke, here in Acts 17, does not record the messages that Paul gave to the synagogue members or those who were able to listen. I presume the messages that he gave were a lot like the sermon Paul gave in Acts 13, where he visits another synagogue in another country and unpacks how Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. But we can nonetheless picture what teaching in a synagogue might have been like when you and I gather, most of us bring our iPhone or our Bible, and we, you know, we come and we open up the Word of God together. Things were a little bit different in the first century. And this, in the synagogue, you would have an ark, a box, and in that box, you would have you would have scrolls of, of the Old Testament. And so a rabbi would, would open up the box and take out a scroll and unroll it, and then he would talk and explain, he would talk about and explain the passage that he had just read uh, aloud. And, and that's what Paul certainly did. Right? But, but Paul didn't stop when he unrolled the Old Testament scroll and explained what it said. So just, you can picture Paul opening up this scroll and reading it and then explaining to you what it said, but Paul didn't stop there. It's as if after or while doing that, he was, if you will, unrolling the scroll of Jesus' life and ministry. Right? Now, they didn't have that written down, but, but, but Paul was, was unrolling it and then explaining to them the touch points between the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the prophecies and predictions of the Old Testament. And so with these two lessons, if you will, side by side, Paul reasoned with them that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament Scripture. So maybe, and and here I say maybe because 
Again, I don't know exactly, I don't know the content of this particular message other than Jesus is the Christ, the crucified and resurrected Messiah the Old Testament proclaims. But what Paul might have done to make that point is he might have unrolled the scroll of Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy chapter 18 is found, where Moses promises that one day God will send a prophet from the people like him to the people. A prophet, of course, has the authority to speak for God. And so Paul, having explained Moses' prophecy, might then have said, oh, and by the way, don't you know Jesus said he was sent by the Father to speak the words of the Father to the people, John 12, 49. So Paul might have done that. Paul may have unrolled the scroll of, of Isaiah 53, where Isaiah predicted that a servant will come to carry away the sins of the people. The servant will accomplish the work of this great high priest. And he'll do this by making an offering for sin and by bearing the iniquities of the people. And then Paul, having read Isaiah 53, could have unrolled the scroll of Jesus' life and of his death and have pointed out that Jesus said he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. He could have pointed out how Jesus' offering up of his own life willingly simply proves that he's the suffering servant promised by Isaiah 53. He would have reasoned from the Scriptures and from the life and the ministry of Jesus. Maybe Paul unrolled the scroll of Samuel and found the passage that we call now 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God told David that he would raise up a king from his house who would reign forever and ever and this eternal king promised by God in 2 Samuel 7 and, and Paul may then have pointed to the ministry of Jesus and pointed out that how when Jesus went about the earth doing all these miracles that there were many of the Jewish people who wanted to crown Jesus as king. But every time they wanted to do that, Jesus would, would sort of hide away. And he may, may have pointed out that when Jesus was standing before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king? And Jesus didn't deny it. He simply said, John 18, 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. And so Paul is reasoning from the Old Testament Scriptures that there is this promise of a prophet and this promise of a, of a priest and a promise of a king. There's this promise to come, a promise fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. This prophet, priest, and king rolled all into one, a Savior who would both die for the people as clearly, clearly is taught in the Old Testament Scriptures, that there needed to be a sacrifice that could truly take away sin forever and ever, and that would be someone to give up his life for the people, a Savior to die for the people, but also a Savior to rise from the ashes and prove that he has authority over sin and over death. What good is a dead king? Only Jesus crucified and resurrected fit the bill. So for three Sabbath days, Paul did what I just did like in five minutes. And for three Sabbath days, he's walking a crowd of people through the entirety of the Old Testament, showing them how it points to Christ. And then look at what happened again, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So many people heard Paul's words and came to saving faith, and, and not just Jewish people. 
there were devout Greeks. There were individuals who were not Jewish by ethnicity, and yet were very interested in what was going on in the synagogue, and they were listening intently, and they came to Saving Faith. There were not a few leading women of the city who must also have been very interested in what the Jewish people were learning and what they were teaching, and they believed in Jesus too. When they saw Jesus proclaimed from the Old Testament. Now, what are you and I to make of this? Well, first and most obviously, but with the hope and prayerful expectation that this simple word of exhortation will challenge you to read more deliberately, first, it's important to read your Old Testament, always keeping an eye out for Christ. Brothers and sisters, Bible reading can be hard work. It is made easier when you realize Christ is the sum and substance of every chapter. He is the climax of creation. He is the one who fulfilled the law, and he's the promised king of kings. I mean, just that right there helps you to read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? He's the climax of creation. He's the, he truly is the perfect man. He is the fulfiller of the law. Look at all these commands to obey. Yeah, there's one who obeyed. His name is Jesus. He's the promised king of kings. What is the Old Testament about if not the need for a king and the failure of kings? And in every one of those kings, you find an arrow pointing to Christ. So, I just encourage you, don't grow weary of reading Old Testament texts. I know sometimes they can be wearisome. You don't say that aloud in church, but I know you think it, because I've thought, it, thought of it. Don't grow weary of reading Old Testament texts. Read each page while asking, what does this passage tell me about my Savior? And if you don't know, well, that's a great time to make a Christian friend and ask them. I know this is about Jesus. I don't know how. Any ideas? That would make for profitable conversation. Second, evangelize the God-fearers. This is the second application point. Evangelize the God-fearers. When Paul came to the city, he started with those who already were interested in the things of God. He spoke in the synagogue. And in a sense, those members of the synagogue, those who were already interested in the Old Testament, were the best equipped to hear Paul's message. They already believed so much. There was already so much common ground. They believed in the God of the Old Testament. They had fear and reverence for him, but that wasn't enough. They needed Christ. They were religious people, but they were not saved. Now, at this point, I could go off and speak for quite some time on the evangelism of, of Jewish people. And living here in Sandy Springs, we have many Jewish friends, and there is a, a lot to be said about looking at passages like this and asking the question, how can we as a church continue to be salt and light in the Jewish community? But I do want to instead pull the, pull the lens back a little bit and ask a more general, or lead us in a more general thought, who are the people in your life, whether they're Jewish or not? In fact, in this case, they're probably not. Who are the people in your life who say they believe in God, maybe even in Jesus Christ, but don't seem to believe? Not really that Jesus Christ must be everything to them. 
Right? They're, they, they say they're playing on the team. Right? They're wearing the Jesus jersey, if you will, but they never break a sweat. Now, it's easy to say that this is maybe a, a, a Bible Belt problem. I, I don't think so. I think this is simply a, a, a worldwide phenomenon. Wherever you're going to have uh, many churches, you're going to have many people who are professing faith in Jesus, but, but, but you, I hope humbly, look at their life and go, I don't quite understand. You know, they're professing faith. They're saying Jesus is God, but their life doesn't appear to be transformed by this gospel. So many Christians are Christian in name only. Perhaps they grew up in a Christian home. Perhaps they never thought to question the faith of their parents. They never thought to understand it either or embrace it. The people that I'm talking about, like the religious men and women in the synagogue, okay, your friends and family members, they need a Paul in their life to open up the Scriptures to, to reason with them what it means to say that Jesus really is, is the Christ. What does it mean to say that he really is the Messiah? So that's what I mean when I say evangelize God-fearers. Now, I'm really excited because we're going to go on in Acts. Eventually, we're, we're going to get to see how does Paul deal with the completely irreligious. He's gonna, we're going to see him model that for us in Athens. But I simply want to pause and just recognize that I know I know that, that many of us have dear friends and family members who say they love Jesus and they don't appear to be living like it. And perhaps we could simply start by saying they need to be evangelized. It's okay to say that. They, they need to be evangelized. Now, let this third application point sort of fit into that second ap application point. Third, let, let the Word of God do the work. Let the Word of God do the work. Christians are to persuade other Christians by reasoning from the Bible. We're not, uh, I'm not saying you can't ever, ever, ever raise your voice, but I, I do remember, now my mom is uh, not, a, not a believer, but I do remember, uh, not even claiming to be a believer, but I do remember early on when I would seek to evangelize my mom, uh, I, would, I would raise my voice, and I don't know why. It just seemed like, well, if I'm louder, she may believe me faster. And it doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. You know, we don't, we don't intimidate people into the kingdom of God. We are to be, well, like, like Paul. You know, Paul actually recorded his posture and tone that he had in Thessalonica. He actually recorded it in the Bible so that we could know how he addressed the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2.7 Paul writes, not just of him, but of his, own, of, of his whole evangelistic team. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Right? There should be a gentleness that marks us in our evangelism. When you believe that God's word will do the work, you don't, you, know, you don't need to be loud. You don't need to be boisterous. Just let the word of God do the work. Speak to them from the Scriptures. And again, although I gave you the example of my mom, I'm thinking of people who already would say they believe the Bible. All right, go to the Bible and let the Word of God do the work. God's Word is the hammer. Right? God's Word is the hammer, especially mine. I have a very big Bible. It's large print, so it's very big. God's Word is the hammer, 
but we, we are the velvet glove, right? Not, not, not in any way dulling Scripture, but let God's Word do the work. All right. The gospel is the point of the Old Testament. Now, here's the second main point of this sermon. The gospel demands allegiance. The gospel demands allegiance. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. <clears throat> and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, we met Jason in verse 5. Jason is Jewish. Uh, he, he may have been converted during Paul's seminars in the Old Testament. In fact, that seems likely that he was one of the members of the synagogue who came to faith in Jesus, persuaded by Paul that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed king. So the Jewish leaders clearly believe that Jason is harboring Paul. And perhaps Paul lived with Jason. Uh, perhaps the church, this, this, this church in Thessalonica actually met in Jason's house. Maybe both of those things are true. In any event, the synagogue leaders, they stirred up a mob to attack, well, to get Paul by attacking Jason. Now, what made these religious leaders so upset? I think we should ask that question. I think we should wrestle with this question. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, why couldn't they just, you know, go along and get along? Why were they so upset? Well, think about what it meant to be part of a synagogue in the first century. Synagogues began to pop up and spread when Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. The temple, the temple had been the center of Jewish life, but Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. Jews fled Israel, and over the centuries, they settled all over the world. They followed Greek travelers and, and merchants, and they settled everywhere. And the synagogues that they established in the cities that they finally settled in were all they had to remember their former way of life. The Scriptures, if they had any, were there. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, and you know when the Jewish community is being sent out of their town. You see the rabbi carrying the scrolls. And that was meaningful to them. The religious leaders were there. That's where their rabbis were. That's where their teachers were. The, their community was all based around the synagogue. And so these synagogues meant everything to the Jewish people. And it's where they worshiped God. And it's where they learned Torah. And it's where they celebrated family and managed the affairs of their, their greater spiritual family. My great-grandfather was not a rabbi, but he was a Jewish leader in a Brooklyn synagogue at the start of the last century. And the life of that community. It meant the world to him. And so the Jewish leaders understandably wanted to preserve synagogue life exactly the way it was, and Paul's message made that impossible. 
You, you couldn't be a Christian and be devoted to the synagogue. You, you had to pick sides. You know, the fact that Jesus rose on, on Sunday meant oh, God's people, truly God's people are going to gather on Sunday. And that's a big deal. You had to pick sides. And this is why Luke writes how the new believers in verse 4 joined. They joined Paul and Silas. They said, you're on team Jesus, and so we're on your team. And that meant leaving their old team. So imagine being the rabbi, seeing Jason grow up, seeing Jason get married, seeing Jason have kids, seeing Jason perhaps becoming a leader in the community, only to see Jason now join Paul and Silas. Coming to Christ meant new spiritual leadership, and it meant new spiritual teaching, and it meant a new spiritual home. Can you appreciate how upsetting that must have been to these Jewish leaders. Now, I'm painting them in a very positive light. I don't want to take anything away from what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that many in the synagogue were jealous, right? Whatever understandable temptation they had, understandable temptation to be angry at Paul and Silas for spouting a message that lost them, Jason and others, whatever temptation they have gave birth to sin. It gave birth to jealousy. Jealousy that Paul had proved so persuasive. And so they wanted to kill the gospel. But here's the problem. The synagogue leaders had no firepower. I mean, they did, you see in the text, they did everything they could to, to start a riot. I mean, they did what they could using their words to try to get some people. Maybe they paid them a little bit of money to cause a rabble in the city. They could start a riot, but they really had no they had no power outside the, the synagogue walls, not in, not in Thessalonica. I mean, we'll, we'll keep going on in Acts. Paul will be in Jerusalem again. Yeah, the synagogue in Jerusalem, and there were hundreds of them, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, yeah, that had some power, but not here in Thessalonica. This is not Jerusalem. And so it required some creative thinking on their part and not a little stretching of the truth. And so they notified the city leaders who had the power. And they accused the Christians of sedition, of treason. Look at verse 6. And when they could not find them, that is, that is uh, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. So that's, that's all it took to disturb the city leaders. That's all it took to upset them. That's all it took to bring them to their side. They charged Jason and effectively Paul and the whole church of being followers of another king, Jesus. So there's, there's no sugarcoating it. And it's difficult, I think, when we use this word king because you and I don't live in a kingdom. Right? We live in a republic. Uh, so the word king doesn't grip us quite the same way. But there's no sugarcoating it, not then and not now. Christianity is a matter of allegiance. It is a matter of allegiance. The gospel demands allegiance. Right? The gospel takes the closest relationships that you have, relationships bound in blood, relationships bound in war, relationships bound in marriage, and the gospel says Jesus comes first. Very clear. Not, not confusing. Not difficult to understand. 
The gospel comes first. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10.35. Jesus said, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, a parallel passage to the one I quoted at the beginning of the, of, of the message. There's, a, there's an allegiance demanded by Christ that inevitably is going to divide Christians from those who might be biologically or familially or uh, through employment, people who might be closest to them but are divided from them because of one's allegiance to Christ and to his gospel message. I felt the weight of this verse long before I had ever read it. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had not read this verse, or at least I didn't think about it, when uh, I went home one evening uh, from college. I went home, and uh, I had been a Christian about a year and was beginning to struggle with whether or not this is a path I wanted to keep walking down. I would say that when I became a Christian, I wasn't completely aware of all the ramifications of Christianity. And uh, the, as the months passed, I became more aware of the cost of following Christ, and some doubts crept into my mind. Is this really the way that I want to go? And I went home one weekend and uh, sat down with my stepdad and had a long conversation, and I walked away from that conversation again. I, didn't, I wasn't thinking of these verses, and I didn't walk away thinking my stepdad is my enemy, but I walked away recognizing I need to decide. I can follow Jesus, and I can follow my stepdad, who, again, I call him my stepdad for clarity with you, but I don't consider him my stepdad. I have, I have two dads. One is my biological dad, and one is my stepdad, and I love them both. But my stepdad, as I've told you before, is a real hero to me. But I walked away from that conversation really understanding, oh, I've got to declare my allegiance. I've got I to pick, and I can't pick both. And I, by God's grace, I chose Christ. And again, it doesn't mean that my dad and I became enemies. But, you know, we, we wouldn't share the same goals. We wouldn't share the same dreams. We wouldn't have the same vision for life. We wouldn't have the same definition of what the good life is. All those things you want to talk about at the heart level, it would be harder to have those conversations with my stepdad from then on and forevermore because we don't have the same king. Make no mistake, I love him and he loves me. There is warmth, right? There is pleasure being together. There is missing one another. But the gospel separates families from one another. And that's what you need to learn from this passage. You, you cannot take Christ as your Savior unless you are simultaneously committed to obeying him as your king. So do you remember David and how even after David had been anointed king of, of Israel, well, Saul still sat on the throne. Saul had not been evicted by God from his kingship. And so therefore, as awful as Saul was, and Saul was awful, he was still technically by divine right the king. And David knew that. 
And though David's men very much wanted to get rid of Saul because Saul was seeking to kill David, again, just an awful king, David said, you do not lay a hand on him. He is the king. No, you honor him. As king, Saul demanded and deserved their allegiance. And so David's men had to live in two worlds all at the same time. They had to live in a world where, in one sense, David was their master, their lord, even their king. He had been sort of privately anointed. But in another sense, Saul was their king. Well, Jesus teaches that we need to live with that same kind of tension. Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Obey the law. You know, pray for, honor your leaders. It's not complicated. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But Jesus also said, in other words, like, obey Saul. Obey Saul. But Jesus doesn't end there, does he? He says, render to God what is God's. What's God's? Your life is God's. Your life belongs to God. This is just, just it. He made you. If you're a Christian, he bought you. Your life begins, be, be, begins, be, belongs to God. So give him everything. Give him your life. Caesar's king, but God's the king of kings. And so we live with this tension. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. What does this mean for us today? Well, let me speak for a moment to anyone who may be uh, on the fence about Christianity. It could, be, it could be because you've grown up in a Christian home and you've just not come to the point where you've fully embraced the faith of your parents. So in that sense, you're, you're on the fence. Uh, maybe you're someone who's just never really publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ. You've, just, you've never done it. You might even be an adult. You've never truly done that. All right, you may have a number of questions that you want answered about Christianity before you're willing to, in a full-throttled way, put your faith in Christ. And they may be good questions. In fact, I don't see any reason why they, we shouldn't assume they're good questions. They may be really hard questions. If they weren't hard questions and you're sitting here listening to me now, you've probably had all the easy ones answered. So they're good questions, they're hard questions, and I don't want to keep you from asking those questions. And I think over the years, the church in general has done kind of a bad job about being a place where hard questions can be asked and warmly received and answered to the best of our abilities. And I don't want to hide from answering your questions. So if you've got some hard questions that you'd really like answered, I hope you're asking them. You know, and I'll certainly do my best, and the people around you will do their best to answer them. And I may not have satisfying answers to all of your questions, but none of this, and here's what I'm saying now, none of this changes the truth that Jesus is the King of Kings. I mean, regardless of your questions or our inability to answer them to your satisfaction, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings. In this world, you will have questions, but don't let those questions keep you from submitting your life to Christ. You can trust him, even when you don't have all the answers. And I guarantee you will never have all the answers, at least not in this world. Christianity doesn't answer all. Well, ultimately it does. But in this world, it just doesn't answer satisfying answers to all of your questions. It offers Christ. Now, a bit more application. A word about jealousy. Not the main point of the passage, but a word about jealousy. Did you notice in verse 5 what set the Jewish leaders off against the Christians? 
They were jealous. Envy and jealousy are some of the grossest, darkest, and most violent sins. Violent. Now, why do I say this? Well, because we know from Matthew 27, 18 that the religious leaders in Jesus' day sent Jesus to the cross because they envied him. They envied the crowds who came to listen to Jesus. We know from Acts chapter 5, verse 17, that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem, they arrested, they violently arrested the apostles because they were jealous of them and their ability to persuade thousands of Jews from around the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know from Acts 13.45 that the religious leaders in Antioch, Pisidia, reviled and persecuted Paul. Why? Because they were jealous of him. So jealousy, so that's why I say jealousy is a sneaky, uh, ugly, destructive, violent sin. Jealousy is the sin that whispers in your ear that you deserve more than you have. More recognition, more money, more health. Envy tells you with a forked tongue, envy tells you that you deserve to wear the crown. So beware of jealousy. Beware of envy. They will attack you whether you are 13 years old or 33 years old or 43 years old. Or, and so, and I, if I left you out, it's going to attack you too. Doesn't just, it doesn't care how old you are. doesn't care how much you've seen. doesn't care how much experience you've had. Right? Envy and jealousy will destroy your friendships, your sour your relationships at church, make you less interested in Jesus Christ. Envy and jealousy are unique sins in that they will make you less interested in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you cannot be concerned about His glory while, while you are concerned about your own glory. And envy and jealousy are all about your glory. Really destructive, really destructive sins, right? Notice in the Bible how often it is jealousy that does the most destructive work. So beware of it. All right, let's move on. The gospel is the point of the Old Testament. The gospel demands allegiance. <clears throat> Third, the gospel is free but costly. Free but costly. Free, but costly. Free, but costly. Free. Okay, stop. Now, that's a funny way to put it. Free, but costly. And so I want to be clear here, so I need Dustin's help. No, I'm not asking you to come up here. But Dustin helped us a few weeks ago when he said that salvation is like a set of Legos that you get for Christmas. If I'm getting it right, the gift is free, but it's only after you get the gift that you have to go to work. Right? He's nodding his head. I understood his illustration of Legoology. And it is a great image. Thank you, brother. The gospel is like that. It is free. It is a gift. Jesus paid it all. Yes and amen. 
but having received the gospel, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Very easy for churches to emphasize one or the other. Both are true, right? If, you, if you're at a church that only emphasizes the gospel is free, oh no, oh no. You're going to have a lot of people bearing the name of Jesus and looking a lot like the world. Right, if you're at a church that only emphasizes work out your salvation, oh no. Because eventually you're going to have a church that doesn't, they, they couldn't find the grace of God to save their lives. Literally. The gospel is free and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Having received the gospel, you engage in the hard, hard work of sanctification because we live in a fallen world filled with trials and tribulations that have to be endured in the name of Christ. So yes, the gospel is free, but once the gospel is received, the gospel is costly in the sense that obedience is, is required and obedience is, is hard. So you can pray just as you pray for Mount Vernon. You know, it's good to pray, God help the elders of the church, help the teachers of the church, help the culture of the church be such that the grace of God is, is rightfully exalted and the requirement to obey is, is properly understood. We need both of those things together. All right, look at verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they heard that Christianity demands allegiance, they were disturbed, right? And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they, they, let them, they let them go. Now, it's strange that we don't read about, like, where are Paul and Silas? Um, the church in Thessalonica appears to be hiding them. I think we'll see that when we go on in Acts. They're protecting them. Uh, the church in Thessalonica is risking its life for the sake of this apostolic band well, thankfully, the city officials here in Thessalonica don't beat Jason up. They don't even arrest him, but they do persecute him. They demand money. They demand security. They demand a bond. And I think they're looking for some guarantee that Jason will get Paul and Silas to leave town, right? So they don't arrest him. They don't beat him, but they demand some type of financial guarantee. Basically, you know, you give us this money, you're not going to get it back until these rascals have left town. Now, Paul might have objected. Uh, he'd been in Thessalonica a, a rather long time. Some think that he's actually been here for months. So he preached for three weeks in the, in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Lo and behold, a church is born, and, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they stay, and they minister, and they, they pour into the church. So the church was in pretty good shape. And, and if he stayed, if he had told Jason to disregard, you know, or if he told Jason to give up that money, well, it, it might have caused further harm to Jason and this young church, a church with members who had already risked their lives for him. And so in any event, uh, for, the, for the sake of the church, it looks like Paul and Silas agreed to go. It was a dangerous place to be for them. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is as dangerous as it is wonderful. The gospel is as costly as it is free. And this is important to grasp. And the moment you forget it, 
the moment you personally forget that Christianity is hard, difficult, dangerous, that's the moment that, the moment that you expect Christianity to be easy and for God to sort of uh, take away all your struggles, whether they're external or internal. The moment you, you think that, you'll never pursue anything in the Christian life that's hard. The moment you think it should be easy, you'll never pursue anything that's hard. Now take Paul. Paul surely knew that the preaching Jesus is the Christ would bring on an avalanche of hostility in Thessalonica, but he still preached it. Take Jason. Jason must have known that siding with King Jesus would have meant there was going to be problems loaded in his backyard, but he still sided with Jesus. He still joined Paul and Silas. The whole church learned this lesson as well. The whole church, by definition, sided with Jesus. Turn, if you would, right in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and just listen to how Paul describes the birth of the church in Thessalonica. Uh, we think that this letter might have been written just a few weeks after Paul left Thessalonica the very first time. Notice how this church came to faith and how Paul describes these very young believers. Verse 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful statement. They followed in the footsteps of Paul in their suffering. They followed in the footsteps of Jesus in their suffering. They followed the footsteps of Paul in their joy, and they followed in the footsteps of Jesus in their joy. Affliction, coupled with God-given joy, marked these young believers. Affliction, that's the Christian life, beginning, middle, and end. The Christian gospel is free, but it's also costly. All right, how can we apply this truth to our lives today? First, give thanks in all circumstances. Don't be surprised when your circumstances are hard. Give thanks. This is exactly what Paul commanded in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Give thanks in all circumstances. So I'm just, I'm plagiarizing the Bible, which is like moral. Immoral to plagiarize your paper for school. Immoral to plagiarize your, you know, your coworker's report. Moral to plagiarize the Bible, as long as you're not making it sound like it's your words, which I guess makes it not plagiarism. Let's keep going. Give thanks in all circumstances. The gospel will not make your trials disappear, but the gospel will help you see them in a new light. Right. The gospel will help you see the sun behind the cloud. The gospel will help you see that even the hurricane waters will rain on parched ground. Every affliction, every affliction properly received strips away self-confidence and reveals your need for God and for his people, his church. And when you see the sanctifying power of trials you can easily, or at least more easily, give thanks in all circumstances. All right. Give thanks in all circumstances. Second, enjoy life. 
enjoy life. Now, I recognize that you're going to be hard-pressed to find a verse in our passage that is directly making the argument that the application for first, or excuse me, for Acts 17, 1 through 9 is enjoy life. But just bear with me for a moment. Enjoy life. Don't expect the worst. Don't be an Eeyore. Even as I tell you, the gospel is costly, and it is costly. Don't forget the Paul who sings hymns in prison. Christianity makes life good today. Let's not forget that. So by way of reminder, as all of our Christian friends in Acts 17, 1 through 9 are being forced underground and paying fines and, you know, it's just really hard. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 91, 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 138, verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Ecclesiastes 8.12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Sometimes I can't help raising my voice. Matthew 11.28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Not tomorrow, like today I will give you rest. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So let's not forget this. Even as we, as we remark upon the costliness of following Christ, Acts is inevitably, inevitably going to lead us that direction. Let's not forget the Paul who sang hymns in prison. Let's not adopt a sort of like, woe is me, rain is around the corner, I guess I'll just endure sort of attitude. Like nobody, be, nobody wants to become one of those people. Praise God for the grace that he provides to sustain you each and every day. Praise God for the good things that he's given you to enjoy. Praise God for picnics and for kids, for medicine and games, for laughter for books, for lightning bugs. Aren't those amazing? Lightning bugs. Unbelievable. It was like a fireworks show in my backyard for free. Unbelievable. From God. Enjoy life, even in the pain. Third application point. Third, keep your eye on the finish line. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> when it comes to your spiritual life, what is the hardest thing you aren't doing right now? When it comes to your spiritual life, what is the hardest thing you're not doing that you should be doing? Something you should be doing, but that you're not doing because it's really hard. And I'm talking about your spiritual life. I'm not like, like, you know, I'm talking about your spiritual life. Maybe you aren't putting to death a sin pattern that really needs to be killed today. I mean, it really need to be, needed to be killed yesterday. And maybe you're not putting it to death. Right? Maybe you aren't engaging your neighbors. Maybe you aren't telling a family member who knows better that you're concerned for his salvation. 
Now, friends, if you've told your family member that 50 times, I think you can give it a break. But maybe there's someone you've never told that to who really thinks they're going to heaven and you really don't think they are and you're really afraid of what they're going to think about you if you tell them you don't think they are. Maybe you aren't finding contentment in your circumstances. But what's something you aren't doing, spiritually speaking, that you really should be doing? It's different for everyone. We all have hard things we need to do. So how can you change? I'm speaking to Christians now. I'm speaking to those of you redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm speaking to those of you who, whose sins have been forgiven. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've confessed that you're a sinner, that you deserve hell, that Jesus is your only hope. You've committed your life to him. There has been evidence that your commitment to him is real, that it's genuine. Right? How can you, right, a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God, and yet who has things that are hard to do that you're not doing that you should be doing, how can you change? How can you, my brother or sister, do the hard thing that you know you should do? And again, as I say these words, I want you to think, you know, Paul's in the back of your mind. Jason's in the back of your mind. These are brothers that were doing hard things. Those leading women, if the women feel let out, leading women of the city, probably no one was applauding them when they came to faith in Christ. Leading women of the city, doing hard things. Well, here's my answer. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And it says this, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What a good word we have here. Oh, my. Life is hard. Running with endurance. I, I recognize maybe it's not Acts 17 hard for you. You know, I get that. But life is hard. Running with endurance is hard. How can we do it? We don't endure by telling ourselves, oh, life is short. No. And when I say endure, when I say endure, I want you to be double-click on endure and, and, and put in its place whatever that hard thing is that you should be doing that you're not doing. That's what I mean by endure, so don't lose sight of that. How do I endure doing that hard thing? We don't endure by telling ourselves, life is short, this too shall pass. We don't endure by telling ourselves, we're strong, I can do it. We don't endure by telling ourselves, well, my struggle isn't as bad as my neighbor. It's really bad for him, so I guess I can do it. No, we endure by looking at Jesus, by fixing our eyes on him, by looking at how he endured something much harder, admittedly, than we will ever face. Jesus endured the cross. He did it by acknowledging the joy set before him a joy yet to come. Your eyes should be on the Savior who is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is your joy. He is your hope. He's your happiness. Look to him, and that's why we gather week in and week out as best we can for the same purpose simply reminding one another week in and week out through all these songs and all these prayers and all these sermons, look to Jesus. 
Not all of us are joiners. I totally get that. Everyone is a little bit different. Not all of us like picking sides. But you are either for King Jesus or you are against him. There's no neutral. There's no in-between. So, church, let's side with Jesus. If we could just renew our covenant and side with Jesus afresh, find him on every page of your Bible because he's there. Submit to him every day because he's king. Look to him through every struggle because for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you that in your sovereign and perfect and holy wisdom, you saw fit to send Jesus into the world that he might be God the Son incarnate, able and willing to live the life that we should have lived, able and willing to die the death that we should have died, able and willing to rise from the dead to prove his sovereignty over sin and death and to fill us with hope eternal. We thank you and praise you for that. We're grateful for the brothers and sisters of long ago who lived in Thessalonica. Father, they amaze us following you in the midst of much affliction. And so, Father, regardless of the intensity of our affliction, would you help us to follow you through thick and thin? All glory be to Christ is what we want to sing. It's what we want our hearts to, to feel. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?